Let's start this morning by just rereading the Christmas story. Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 1, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census took place while Canarius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In our first study, we constructed a literal and historical understanding of Christmas. In so many ways, it is a unique American holiday. On the flip side, it is a time that we've set aside to recognize the birth of Christ, and thus it's fitting and appropriate for us to take a moment to look at the significance of the Incarnation. Speaking of the Incarnation, in our second study, we established the significance of the virgin birth of Jesus. Our third study focused on the personal impact the birth of Jesus had on our main characters, Mary and Joseph. And then last Sunday, coupled with our Christmas Eve service, we looked at the supporting cast. We looked at the shepherds, the wise men, Herod, and the scribes, and looked at the impact Jesus' birth had for them as well. Now, in light of the fact that New Year's is coming soon, just two days away, this morning, following Christmas, we're going to look at the new day, the life, of Je- the life that's provided from the birth of Jesus. Now, as we've discussed over the last several weeks, the Christmas story had major, in many ways, life-altering ramifications for everyone that was involved with the events of that night. Though the newborn babe had been born to save the world from sin, this baby wrapped in swaddling clothes did more than just that. Jesus and his birth that night in Bethlehem, it changed the lives of every single person that was invited to participate. Truly, a new day followed the birth of Jesus for Mary and for Joseph. A new day followed for the shepherds. They would return to their fields, but life would never be the same. Even the wise men who came much later, a new day was on their horizon as well. For those involved in the Christmas story, those who responded to the invitation to be a part of this story, their lives would never be the same. Now, when discussing the new day that follows the birth of Christ, In so many ways, it would be obvious for us to maybe take an in-depth look of the life of Mary or that of Joseph. There's not much that we would be able to look concerning the shepherds or even the wise men. But this morning, we're going to take an unconventional approach. Before we do, let me introduce you to two important terms. Two terms, in in many ways, you're probably already familiar with, but lay the groundwork for what we're going to do this morning. The first term I want to introduce you to is that of foreshadowing. Foreshadowing can be defined as the presentation in a literary work of hints and clues that tip a reader off to what's coming later in in the work. 
Uh, I love foreshadowing when it comes to television shows. One of the great joys I have in watching a series is being able to try to theorize and speculate what's going to happen with the season finale. Jess and I are big television show people, and that's part of the game after the episode to try to come up with various hints and clues that the writers might have dropped in the scene, in the episode, so that you can maybe predict what's going to happen. We kind of, in so many ways, keep score as to how many predictions you get right and how many predictions you get wrong. Sadly, you get more wrong than you get right, but that's the fun of it, foreshadowing. Now, there's another term you should familiarize yourself with, and that's what's called, and this might be less familiar, it's called formal patterning. Formal patterning is a form of foreshadowing where the organization of the events and actions and gestures themselves constitute a narrative that gives shape to a story, allowing the audience or the reader the pleasure of being able to discern and anticipate the structure of the plot as it reveals itself to the characters. Once again, when you're watching television shows, what's what's fun is that you, the audience, are given way more information to what the characters are privy to. The characters aren't allowed to see what's happening with other characters, but you, the audience, are. And so in watching the way that the story, the narrative itself is formed, you have more information than the characters, and so you're allowed to be able to anticipate and to be able to sense things that are coming up that the characters themselves maybe even aren't aware of. Foreshadowing and formal pattering are important to our enjoyment of works of literature, But we should point out, as a work of literature, the Bible is full of both techniques. When you're reading a story in the New Testament, let's say the Christmas story, it's often helpful for you to go back, maybe even do some word searches, to see if in the Old Testament there are any clues or formal patterning that provide a depth of meaning and understanding for the story you're looking at. It's been said that the best commentary to the New Testament is the Old Testament. And the best commentary to the Old Testament is the New Testament. That in so many ways, the two go hand in hand. So many times, some of the stories, and in particular the Christmas story, take on a new depth of meaning if you look back into the Old Testament to see if there's any foreshadowing or formal patterning that give more meaning to the events themselves. Now, in order to address our topic, the new day that follows the birth of Christ, instead of looking at Mary or Joseph or the shepherds or the wise men, what we're going to do is we're going to travel back 1,100 years to a story that occurred in the exact same fields in Bethlehem where this stable existed, where the newborn king, the savior of the world was born. 1,100 years in the same fields outside of the same town, we find a fascinating story that I think adds a new dynamic to the Christmas narrative. Let's look at the story of Ruth and Boaz. Ruth chapter 1. We're told it came to pass. I love how it begins. It's very similar to what we find in Luke chapter 2. 
in the days when judges ruled, that there was a famine in the land. Same kind of an intro, same kind of a greeting that we find with Luke, but a different scene. Instead of Roman occupation, we find that there are judges ruling the land. And we're told that a certain man of Bethlehem, not Joseph, but instead a man of Judea who dwelt in the country of Moab, he and his wife, his sons, the man's name was Elamech. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. We're told that they were Ephraimites of Bethlehem. That means that they were of the tribe of Ephraim, Bethlehem, Judah. And we're told that they went to the country of Moab and they remained there. The time is the judges. If you're unfamiliar with Old Testament narrative or history, the period of the judges or the book of Judges includes 400 years of a very interesting time, let's say, of Israel's history. They've dwelt in the land of Canaan. They've made the trek out of Egypt. They've returned to the promised land. Joshua has, for the most part, rid the land of various occupiers, and the people of God are residing in the land God had promised. Now, we find that over these 400 years, a cycle of behavior, and it really makes up the book of Judges, the people would move from obedience to disobedience. They would begin to look around at some of the other pagan nations, and they would start to compromise. They would start to let down their moral guard. They would start to let down their religious and moral heritage. And they would start to emulate some of the behavior of these other nations. Compromise. Now, in their compromise, they would subtly slip down the slope towards full-blown rebellion. Pagan worship, idolatry, just to name a few of the sins the children of God would find themselves prey to. Now, in their rebellion, God would use one of these foreign nations to rise up and to conquer. You might even think that God would use one of these nations to be kind of like a divine paddle. His people were in rebellion, and as any good father would do, they needed a butt kicking. And so he would use the Philistines or the Moabites or the Amalekites or any of these other ites that surrounded the people of God, they would come in and they would judge the people. They would conquer the people. And in the period of this punishment, the children of God would become aware that what was happening was a direct byproduct of their own sinful choices. God allowed them to experience the natural byproduct of sin, not to destroy them, but to open their eyes that they needed to change their behavior and repent. And in many cases, they did. They would repent and they would, as a nation, cry out to God for deliverance. And what would the Lord do? He would raise up a judge from the likes of Gideon to Samson, who would lead a, a, a revolt against whatever conquering nation it happened to be at the time. God would use the judge to be a deliverer, the people would be restored to a national worship and their repentance. They would return to obedience. This would 
lead them to peace, which would last for so many years, and the cycle would happen all over again. As a matter of fact, from somewhere between seven to ten times, we see this cycle of behavior happening in the book of Judges. Now, it's that backdrop that we see the Lord judging the people using a different mode than a conquering nation. He's judging the people, as he has in the past, using a famine. A famine. The land would no longer yield increase, and this was an indicator to the people that they had been in error, that they had been in sin. Now, ultimately, the people of God should have recognized the famine as judgment, and in doing so, repent, place himself under the judgment, return to obedience, God would lift the famine, the land would yield increase, and they would continue onward. But we find something, well, sad. Eliamech and his family, instead of staying in Bethlehem as Jews, as members of the tribe of Ephraim, instead of staying there, recognizing the famine was judgment, changing their behavior, Eliamech packs up his family, Naomi and the boys, they load up and they cross back over the Jordan to the land of Moab. Now understand what's happening here is treasonous. What Eliamech is doing is he's rejecting the God of his fathers. He's rejecting the rebuke of God. He's rejecting the instruction of God. He's rejecting the judgment and punishment of God. He's saying enough of that. I'm going to a pagan foreign land. He leaves. He abandons the promised land, the promised life. He and his family leave. He abandoned the God of his fathers. Well, we're told in verse 3, so Eliamach, Naomi's husband, he died. He died in Moab. And now Naomi was left with her two sons, and so these boys took wives of the women of Moab. The name of one was Orpah. Every time I read that, I want to say Oprah. I don't know what it is. So if I say Oprah, I mean Orpah. And the name of the other lady, the other woman, was Ruth. And so they dwelt there about 10 years. Now both Malon and Chilion also died. And so the women survived her two sons and her husband. And so Naomi arose with her daughter-in-laws that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard from the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and had given them bread. Therefore, she went out from the place where she was and her two daughter-in-laws with her, and they went on the way to return to the land. But Naomi said to her daughters, Go, return to your mother's house. And may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And may the Lord grant you that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. Naomi. Naomi has had enough. She loads up with Jed and the boys, makes her way from the homeland to Moab. She's a submissive wife. We don't know how much she participated in the actual plan. 
Either way, she went. Her husband dies. Her boys marry. They don't have any children. And then her boys die. This lady has experienced 10 years of absolute sorrow. She's done. Put a fork in it. It's time for her to go back to Bethlehem. As a matter of fact, we're given an indication in verse 13 that she views her loss, that Elimech dying and then the two boys dying, that she views these losses as actual judgment. She tried to escape the judgment by leaving Bethlehem, and now God had caught up with her. She says in verse 13 that the, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Naomi, for whatever reason, right or wrong, she got the message, and since there was nothing anymore to keep her in Moab, she decides it's best to return to Bethlehem. Now, please understand, though Orpah and Ruth are bound to Naomi as family, legally, they're bound to go wherever Naomi goes and to care for their mother-in-law. But because neither of these two women had borne children for 10 years, the two boys had not produced any offspring because of this. And because the situation going back to Bethlehem would be dicey, Naomi chooses to release them from commitment. They were bound to go with Naomi, but Naomi makes the choice to send them home. They should go back to the home of their mothers they should take off the black clothes. They should doll themselves up. They should find new men, Moabites. They should remarry, have kids, and move on with their lives. This is what Naomi is saying to these ladies. Now understand, in addition to the lack of a future, going with Naomi, this old widow would have been for Orpah and Ruth. They're young. Go back home. Move on with your lives. Un understand. Naomi is also doing this basically for protection. She loves these two ladies. For 10 years, they're family. Though they're from Moab, they're still family. They're, there's a kindred spirit. They're, they're knitted together under the bond of a common last name. Naomi cares for these women. Not only does she want them to have a future, so go home, remarry, move on. I give you leave. But returning with Naomi would have been a dangerous and dicey situation. They could have kissed away the idea of remarrying in Bethlehem. Not only were they widows, and in that culture, that would have been viewed as somewhat damaged goods. Who wants to marry a widow? There are other women in the land. These two women uh, would have been low on the totem pole. But also, as Moabite women, there's no the law forbid them to remarry any of the people of Israel, any of the people of God. And so going with Naomi, it, they would have had no future there, but as Gentiles, as Moabites who were enemies of Israel, in the most extreme cases, they could have been raped or molested, even murdered. Wouldn't have been uncommon. So Naomi sees herself doing a favor. She loves these ladies. She says, listen, Go home, move on with your lives. Going to Israel, coming with me. There's no future in that for you. I'm not going to have any kids anytime soon for you to remarry. No one in the land's going to remarry you. It's dangerous. It's dicey. Just chill. 
Now, Oprah, Orpa, she goes with the flow. She's like, enough said, I'm game. And she bails. But Ruth, we actually see a very interesting response. We're told in verse 14 that Ruth clung to Naomi. She clung. She grabbed hold of her. And Naomi looks at Ruth and she says, look, your sister-in-law, she's gone back. She's smart. She's gone back to her people. She's gone back to her gods. So go with her. But Ruth, Ruth says, I beg of you or entreat me not to leave you. Don't make me go. Don't make me turn back from following you. For wherever you go, Naomi, I will go. And wherever you lodge, wherever you stay, I will stay with you. And then Ruth says, your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and I. And when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined, and you can you could say that Ruth was determined, that she stopped speaking. And the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. Now there are two things that we should point out concerning this woman, Ruth. First, I think it's undeniable that she had a strong bond with Naomi. We don't know a whole lot of the interactions between these two, other than the fact that they had both experienced loss. Naomi had experienced the loss of her husband, and then later Ruth would experience the exact same kind of pain, losing her husband. You can imagine that Naomi dealing with her grief, dealing with her pain, dealing with her loss, receiving comfort through that painful time made her a good comforter. And often when we endure trial, we also become good comforters. I can see that as Ruth deals with the loss of her own husband, that Naomi knew exactly what to do. That Naomi knew how to minister to Ruth, knew what words to say, knew what words not to say, knew when to provide words of encouragement, and knew when to just shut up and cry with her. There is a bond between these two ladies that Ruth, that Ruth loves Naomi, and Naomi loves Ruth, that these two are connected I mean, the language that Ruth uses, where you lodge, I'll lodge. Where you go, I'll go. If only but death would separate the two of us. And so we see that she's got this connection, a love for her mother-in-law. But we also see something fascinating. We also see that she had a real faith in the God of Israel. Now, as a Gentile, Living in Judah, 
Ruth would always be a foreigner. As a widow, she would always occupy the lowest rung of Jewish society. She would be a peasant. But Ruth, Ruth made a decision that no matter what happened or whatever her future might hold, Ruth decided it would, better, it would be better to be a slave or an outcast or a nobody and the land of God being included as a part of the people of God than to have a future in Moab. Now, we don't really know how the conversion took place. There is no doubt an element by the godly example and witness of Naomi that Ruth was able to observe that Naomi exhibited a faith in God and that faith rubbed off on Ruth. It could be that the comfort that Naomi was able to provide in Ruth's own loss and grief provided something so tangible, something so different than what was offered in the land of Moab that, she, that it was just a stark contrast, that the difference was undeniable, that Ruth is like, I want whatever Naomi has. I want to be part of her people. I want to be a follower of her God, even if that means danger, even if that means a lack of a future, even if that means I never remarry, even if that means I occupy simply the role of a servant. I would rather be a servant in the land of Israel from Ruth's perspective than to remarry, move on, and have a home in the world of Moab. Her conversion there's nothing radical. There's no miracle. There's no supernatural interactions. Simply the witness of an old lady who came alongside this young gal to help her through a tough time was enough to communicate to Ruth that she wanted what Naomi had. It's powerful. I heard one commentator say that Ruth experienced the very natural moving of the supernatural hand of God. So in verse 22, Naomi returned, and Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her. They returned from the country of Moab. They came to Bethlehem. At the beginning, the barley harvest, there was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth, chapter 2, of the family of Eliamech, his name was Boaz. So these two ladies, they return, and our author sets the stage. Now before we move any further into our story, we've got to set up a profile of a new character that's been introduced, that of Boaz, because our story is going to take an interesting turn as we dig into chapter 2. Now, what we know of Boaz is this. First, Boaz was a man of great wealth. We have no idea how he gained his wealth. We don't know much of the family of Elamech and thus don't know a whole lot of the family of Boaz other than the fact that his money was born from agriculture. Most of our narration is going to take place. Most of the scene of activity will occur, not in the city proper of Bethlehem, but in the fields as they're harvesting barley. So he was a man of great wealth. We're also told that he was a man of unique spiritual legacy. 
Now, we're not told this in this particular passage, but according to Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, we're told that Boaz's mother is another heroine of Scripture. Interesting to connect the dots, but Boaz's mom was Rahab the harlot. I don't know if you recall, but the story of Joshua in the Battle of Jericho, where they march around the walls and the walls come tumbling down. If you recall, when the spies came in to spy out the land, to check out the city, that they were harbored by Rahab the harlot. And because of her faith, she wanted to be spared, her and her family. And so the spy said, you hang out this scarlet thread from your window and you'll be spared. And sure enough, as an act of faith, she hung out this scarlet thread. She was spared and she assimilated into the people of God. She was included. This woman from Jericho, this pagan foreigner, became a family member. She converted. She was a follower of God. And her son is Boaz. Now, because Boaz was a fa- part of the family of Elamech, we can assume that Rahab, the harlot, would later marry, obviously, a young Jewish lad. So Boaz has a unique spiritual legacy. His mom was also a pagan Gentile woman living in a foreign land who made a decision to identify herself with the people of God, very similar to Ruth. And then we also see that he probably experienced in some regards the similar prejudice that not being full-blooded Jew would bring with it. He was part Gentile. So he has a unique spiritual legacy. We're also told, thirdly, that Boaz was a relative of Naomi's husband. Now, the word we find here, relative, is not just that he was family. The word, the Hebrew word for relative is the word goel, G-O-E-L. Now, the word goel, in addition to being translated as relative, can be translated as kinsman. Though he's family, please understand that the goel in Jewish society was more than just a random family member. No, it signified an important and significant role that Boaz would have in Eliamech's family. So when we're told that Boaz was a relative of Naomi, it's not just that he was a relative, but that he was the goel of the family, or he was the patriarch, that he occupied a unique and significant role in the family. Now, according to Leviticus chapter 25 and Deuteronomy chapter 25, of which we're not going to read, the role and responsibilities of the goel or the kinsman redeemer is described. We're told that the role and responsibility of the goel, that there were three roles. First, the goel had rights over persons. In society, if let's say you had accumulated debt, the Jewish culture, a debt that you couldn't pay. What you could do at that point to your debtor is you could say, listen, I can't pay off the debt with money, but I happen to have a son 
that I don't really like a whole lot anyway, and I'm just going to let him be your slave for a while to pay off the debt, to work off the debt. I didn't need him. And so you could send your firstborn. Son, I love you. Kind of. You're going. Enjoy being a slave. I mean, some of the dads are thinking, that's wonderful. Like, that's a, I don't know why we don't adopt that into uh, New Testament church culture. If the debt was really great, the whole family could end up going into servitude as slaves to pay off the debt. Now, if this was the case, and there you are Christmas morning with the fam, and the Goel, the patriarch, is looking around and saying, hey, where's Jimmy? And you're like, well, I owed so-and-so a few bucks, so he's going to be a slave for the next 12 years of his life. At that point, the Goel, if he wanted to, could say, okay, not my nephew or my grandson or whoever. That's, that's not going to work. He could go to the debtor and he could say, listen, I'm going to pay the debt off. I'm going to redeem the person. This is, this is not going to happen in my family. So he could go and intervene and pay off the debt. So the Goel had rights over persons. The Goel, secondly, also had rights over property. I don't know if you know this, but in Israel, property is kind of a big deal. Land is a big deal. It was a big deal in the book of Joshua. It was a big deal in the book of Judges. It's a big deal today. Like most of what they're fighting about and the source of conflict is what? It's that this is our land and we want it back. So they're building Jewish settlements and that's ticking off the Palestinians and it's a source of conflict. They're big into land. Why? It's their heritage. Not only is it their heritage, but God divided it up and gave it to the families. Like this was their, their land. Now, once again, land could be bought, it could be sold, it could be repossessed. Every 50th year or the year of Jubilee, there was like this gigantic repo reset button that got mashed. And if you had bought in land and from the tribe of Ephraim, but you were of the tribe of, let's say, uh, Reuben, at that point, it all reset, the land went back to the family so that it stayed within the tribes. Now, if you lost your land and the Goel and the family is like, no, 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 like that's not going to happen. Um, I don't want those crazy Reubenites like bumping all their loud music in the property next door that he could go and say, well, hey, what's the deal? What was paid for it? What happened? And he could redeem it back. He could satisfy that debt. But the third role, so the Goel had right over persons, over property, but the Goel had rights over posterity. Now what this means is that if there was a widowless, if there was a childless widow in the family, the Goel could step in and provide an heir. Now, once again, in addition to land being a big deal, if you're a student of Scripture, you're also aware that genealogies are a big deal to the Jews. Family heritage, the continuation of the family name, was important to the Jews. So if you were to take my family, and I marry Jessica, Nick marries Dana, 
but let's say something were to happen to Jessica, then it would be Mac, my 21-year-old brother, if Jessica had not had a son, it would be his responsibility to step in to marry my wife to provide an heir for me. Like That's how it worked. Kind of weird. Thank goodness Quincy was born, and that's never going to have to happen. <laughs> Let's just remove that from being awkward. <laughs> now, if, as in the case here, both sons have died, Ruth is a widow, she's childless, Naomi's not going to provide another son that could grow up, become of age, and marry Ruth. The Goel of the family could step in under the right circumstances, marry the woman to continue the family name. Now, this is Boaz. Boaz, in addition to being a man of great wealth, in addition to being um, a man with a unique spiritual legacy, a heritage all himself, Boaz is the family Goel. Now that's how chapter 2 opens. Verse 2, so Ruth says to Naomi, please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I might find favor. So Naomi said to her, go my daughter. So she left, she went, she gleaned in the fields after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. It happened, sure. Who was of the family of Elamech? Now Ruth goes to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. She goes to this part of the field for two reasons, we're told. First, obvious, she went to glean heads of grain. The welfare system of Israel was brilliant. The welfare system provided for the less fortunate. It provided a safety net, a welfare safety net for people to eat and to survive. Widows and orphans, the disenfranchised, the poor could go to the fields and it was all set up where they could pick up the scraps. There were sections of the fields that have to be left. It provided a, a social safety net but it also required the poor to do something for the safety net. So it was a combination of taking care of those in need, but also requiring them to exert effort. Jewish culture, there was welfare, but there was also personal responsibility. So Ruth and Naomi, both being widows, both occupying this lowest rung of society, Ruth says to her mother-in-law, I'll go and glean. I'll go out into the fields with the rest of the poor, and I'll go and collect enough for us to eat today. And so she goes to glean, but there's another reason she goes. We're told that she went to glean heads of grain after him, in whose sight I might find favor. Now let's not overlook the obvious. Though it was a long shot, Ruth went into the fields, not just to get food, but she went out pursuing a man. Then Boaz, verse 5, comes out. He says to his servants, looking around, he's observing what's happening. It's his field. He sees the poor and these widows collecting. 
But he turns to his servants who are in charge of the reapers. And he says, whose young woman is this? Now, understand that there is something lost in the translation. Because what Boaz is literally saying is he's, is he's saying, hey, fellas, the lady in black, is she available? I mean, that's what he's saying. Whose woman? Is she taken? Is she available? Now, now I think before any of this stuff happened that, that there's something else that occurs because I think there's Boaz walking into the fields. He's surveying things. As he's surveying, it's like, boom! Eyes get big, bulge out. His heart starts pittering and pattering. His pulse starts racing. I mean, he's just like, oh my, wow, dude. Come here, fellas. Is she available? Whose woman is that? She's not on eHarmony, is she? I mean, Boaz, Boaz is pumped up here. Now, the servants that were in charge of the reapers, they look at Boaz and they say, well, it's the young Moabite woman who's returned with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she came to us and she asked that, that we would allow her to glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she's, she came and she's continued all morning. I love it. Boaz looks at Ruth, and this is a woman who's rolled up her shirt sleeves. She's hiked up her skirt. She has broken a sweat, and Boaz is all into it. He's like, oh, my goodness. You know, very rarely, you know, after a long workout, does anyone look really attractive? But Boaz is all about Ruth. She's got a good sweat, a good lather. He's into it. And so Boaz is like, all right. He goes to Ruth. And he says, you'll listen, my daughter, will you not? I, I could see him like puffing up his chest. What's up, good looking? Hey, lend me your ear for a moment. I don't want you to go to any of these other fields. There's no need. You could just stay here. Matter of fact, you just, you just stay close with my women. <laughs> that would never work for any other man. And he says, let your eyes be on the field that they reap. And you go after them. And I've told my men to not touch you. Not to make a move. You're safe. You're protected. As a matter of fact, when you're thirsty, you go to the vessel and you drink what the young men have drawn. Now, we know by the fact that Ruth went to this field specifically that she's got a little interest in Boaz, the eligible bachelor. But we now know that Boaz is a little smitten himself. Now, sparks are about to fly. Look at verse 14. So Boaz comes up to her at mealtime. And he says, come here, woman. I added the woman. And eat... And eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in my vinegar. So she sat 
He passed her parched grain. She ate, was satisfied, and kept some back. Now, this is basically a first century lunch date. They're all working out in the fields. Boaz comes and says, hey, you want to have lunch? And Ruth's like, sure, I'll have some lunch. And so they get their food, and Boaz is like, why don't we just split a meal? You can dip a little in my vinegar. I'll dip a little in your vinegar. We'll just have a good time here, chewing the fat, talking a little. Now, now you really know. As a matter of fact, I, I think that all doubt is removed at this point that Ruth is totally into Boaz. Now, you might say, how do you get that from verse 14? We're told that she ate and was satisfied, but she kept some back. Now, fellas, let me tell you, if you're single and you go on a date, you build up the nerve, you ask the girl out on a date, and you go eat, and you sit there, and you're doing most of the talking, and, I mean, she gorges herself. I mean, she, she orders the most expensive thing on the menu. She eats, eats every bite of it. She just sits there. She's, she's, understand, she went out with you not to hang out with you, but to get the meal from you. You see, you know when a, a dinner date goes well if you're talking and she's kind of picking. She eats. But if she takes home leftovers, which is what Ruth did, she ate, was satisfied, and kept some back. She's like, oh, I'm full. You know she wasn't. Just put that in a doggy bag. I'll take it with me. It's at this point, all doubts removed. Ruth got her eye on Bo. And so, verse 15, she rose up to glean. Boaz commanded his men, saying, let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. Let grain from the bundles fall before her with purpose and leave it so she can glean. Don't rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening, beat out what she had. It was about an ephah of barley. She took it up, went into the city. When her mother-in-law saw it, what she had gleaned, she brought it out and gave it to her. They didn't keep anything back, and they were satisfied. Now, now what Boaz is doing here. He's going above and beyond anything that the law would require to do for a widow. He's communicating his interest in Ruth. Once again, he's a smart man because he enlists the help of some wingmen. Fellas, if you're pursuing, the, you always need good wingmen. Guys that get your back. Now, according to the next several verses, his advances are noticed by Ruth but they've also caught the attention of Naomi. Ruth comes back with like way more food and a doggy bag from Macaroni Grill. Like that's a little abnormal for a day's work for a widow. Naomi's seeing what's happening. She's watching. She's observing. And verse 23 tells us, it kind of summarizes the next couple months. We're told that Ruth stayed close to the young woman. She gleaned to the end of barley harvest. She dealt with her mother-in-law. Now, there's one aspect to the role of the Goel that we should mention at this juncture in our story. Though Boaz, as Ruth's kinsman redeemer, had every right to marry Ruth, understand, 
the Goel could only assume that responsibility if he was asked. Boaz, Boaz knows his role. He knows that he can marry Ruth. He's doing everything to woo Ruth. But when it's all said and done, he's waiting. He's waiting for Ruth to make the move. And we're told that the harvest season, the barley and the wheat season, they've come to a close, which means that their natural opportunity to interact, to shoot glances, to flirt in the fields, the opportunity, the window is coming to a close. And as we approach chapter 3, we're kind of thinking, is Ruth going to pull the trigger? Is she going to seal the deal? And it appears that it's time for Naomi to intervene. Verse 1, so Naomi comes to Ruth and says, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it might be well for you? Boaz, whose young women you've been with, is he not your Goel, your relative? In fact, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Therefore, wash yourself, anoint yourself, put on your best garment, go down to the threshing floor. Don't make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. And then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place that he lies. You should go in, uncover his feet, lie down, and you do what he tells you to do. And Naomi's basically saying, come on, girl, what you waiting for? Like it's time. The conclusion of the harvest, they're going to be having a big party down at the threshing floor. Ruth, this is the moment. Are you ready? Now, I love Naomi's advice. It's good advice. You're trying to get a man? You should also follow this advice. Naomi's first bit was, was okay, hon, you need to bathe. Like, it's time. A bath might be a good thing. Not only a bath... Might be time to shave them legs. A little perfume don't hurt either. As a matter of fact, the black, it's just not doing it for you. You need to put on some good clothes, dress up, fancy yourself. You go down, you mingle, you mix, you flirt, you smile. But honey, let him eat. Don't interrupt him. Let the man eat. Let him drink. Let him be full. No one likes a nagging woman where you're trying to enjoy that nice, juicy steak. Ruth capitulates. She listens. And then she makes her move. Now, Naomi tells her to go in, uncover his feet, lie down, and then he'll say what you're to do. Now, there are those who sadly try to read into this something perverted as in Naomi's telling Ruth that she needs to go and make a sexual advance towards Boaz. Laying at someone's feet was a cultural sign of respect and submissiveness. Naomi is telling Ruth to go and to call Boaz to be her redeemer. Now, verse 8, it happened at midnight that the man, you can imagine, Boaz has had his full, he's had his drink, he's laid down, he's satisfied, he's been working hard, and he's startled. Why? Well, there's a woman laying at his feet who's just taking his shoes off. And he says, who are you? And so she answers, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, 
for you are a close relative. Literally, you're my Goel. And he said, blessed are you, blessed of you, of the Lord, my daughter. Ruth makes the move. She calls Boaz to be her redeemer. And Boaz, once again, I mean, I think there he is, and he's like, bada bing, bada boom, about time, I've been waiting. He's grinning from ear to ear. He's excited. He's pumped up. Now, we don't have time to dig into the rest of the details of this particular story, other than the fact that we can mention of the, you know, the, the happily ever after. Chapter 4, verse 13, if you, if you notice it with me, we're told that Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, and he went in, he laid with her, the Lord gave her conception, she bore a son. Boaz redeems Ruth, Ruth has an heir. It's a beautiful, beautiful love story right there in the fields of Bethlehem. Now, in conclusion, let's bring it full circle. I want to get back to the foreshadowing that we find in this love story between Ruth and Boaz in the fields of Bethlehem that point directly to the events that would occur in a stable located in these same fields 1,100 years later. Now, first, in Boaz we find incredible foreshadowing. As a matter of fact, a picture of our kinsman redeemer. Boaz, he could only redeem Ruth because he was kin, because he was the Goel. He had a legal claim. Now, in much the same way, understand that Jesus could only redeem you and I to himself. Jesus could only pay our debt. He could only bring us back to himself if he was our kin. This is why Jesus chose to become a man. This is why Jesus, through the incarnation, joined the ranks of humanity. Jesus became a kin so that he could be our redeemer, so he could be our goel. Jesus came to pay our debt. He came to provide us a heavenly heritage. He came to redeem. But we should also note that Boaz, you know, he had nothing to gain personally by redeeming Ruth. We have no mention. I mean, it's not like Ruth came with, Ruth only came with baggage. She didn't come with anything worthy. As a matter of fact, for the most part, she's unworthy. She's a Moabite living in Israel. She's a widow. She's been married before. She's a down and out or she's an outcast. She's a peasant. She brings nothing to this wealthy man. But note that Boaz, he didn't have to save her. He wasn't obligated to do so. Even when Ruth came, he could have declined. But Boaz wanted to redeem Ruth. And why? It wasn't that Ruth brought anything. It was that Boaz was motivated by a pure, selfless, and gracious love for Ruth. As a matter of fact, isn't it interesting that the passage, this story seems to indicate that it was love at first sight for Boaz? 
before he had spoken to the woman, before he knew anything about her, before he had gotten her background, before he had gotten her story, before he had found out she was interested in him, immediately he goes into the fields and he sees this woman and he's smitten. He loves her. Do you know that in much the same way, the Lord loves you not because you've done anything to deserve it or anything to earn it. The Lord loves you out of his grace and out of his selflessness. For God so loved the whole world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We see in Boaz a beautiful picture of Jesus as our kinsman redeemer. It makes sense why the son of God had to come as a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. In order to redeem Jesus had to first become kin. But secondly, in Ruth, in Ruth we find a picture of the new day that we find as a member of the family of God. Ruth, you know, we have a lot in common with Ruth. Like Ruth, we've been born into a pagan culture. Like Ruth, most of us have grown up in a world characterized by sin. And let's be honest, rampant paganism. But Ruth, like Ruth, many of us have become dissatisfied with the world for what the world has to offer, for what the world provides. For many of us like Ruth, we've longed as well for something more. After seeing the faith and godly, and godly example of her mother-in-law, Naomi, Ruth counted the cost. She didn't matter what place or what her future held. She chose to reject Moab to be a member of the family of God. And you know what? She made this decision knowing full well that it would probably, it would probably mean a more difficult life living in Israel than it would have living in Moab. Ruth chose to be counted among the people of God. She made this decision. And when she arrived into the fields of Bethlehem, what did she discover? Well, just like the angels discovered, and just like Mary and Joseph uncovered, and just like the wise men came to see, Ruth in the same fields of Bethlehem, she found that there was a Redeemer who not only wanted to save her, but wanted to provide her a new life that she would have never, ever dreamed possible. Many of us come to Jesus because we're sick of the life we have in the world. We've become dissatisfied with that life, and we're like, I'm done doing this on my own. I need, I'm done with the world. I need the Lord. And so we come to the Lord. We come to the cross out of desperation. But what we find, not only salvation, but we find a new life. A life we never even dreamt possible. A life that's real. The key is that Ruth chose her Redeemer. You have to ask, was Ruth's life worse for making her daring decision? 
I think it's easy to say no. The tale of Ruth and Boaz, it ends in chapter 4, verse 22, when we're told that Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David. Now, this is what's awesome to me about this story. And this is where foreshadowing and formal patterning, where everything comes together, where, where you, you read through Scripture and you're like, none of this is by accident. It all interconnects. This Moabite woman, Ruth, who made a decision to leave behind the life in Moab for a life in Israel, a life with God, only then to discover a redeemer. We find that Ruth became the great-grandmother of King David, meaning that Ruth, Ruth became a part of the family lineage of Jesus. She became part of Jesus' story in much the same way Mary did when she responded to the invitation. And Joseph, when he responded to the dream. And the shepherds and the wise men, they all responded. And they found themselves part of the family of God in this morning. How's the life in the world? We find an invitation for a new life found after an encounter with Jesus. Ruth, the great-grandmother of King David, would have a direct family link to Jesus. And I love that. It's homework. Read through the family lineage of Jesus provided in Matthew chapter 1. And notice some of the names of the people that Jesus chose to be part of his family. We've got whores and Moabite women, and murderers, and adulterers. God chose to include them, to give them a fresh start and a new life. And he's chosen the same thing for you and I. Ruth chose something better, and her new life included her and the family of God. And so, Father, with that, we thank you so much for your word and what your word says to us. In Jesus' name, amen.